This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, I am joined once again in studio by Pastor Bruss. Pastor Bruss, you've been out of the podcast scene for the last several times. Pastor Okri and I have been listening to sermons dealing with the subject of baptism. And this morning we take up the same topic, listening from a pastor out of Rome, Georgia. Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Wore that coat about as long as I can take it, so. <laughs> Moving away from First John this week, uh, maybe a possibility if we don't get finished this morning that we can finish up next week, but I will try to, uh, try to get my point across. Baptism next week, uh, as of right now, we're looking at um, probably 11 um, which has kind of um, moved me in this direction. I uh, got a, an email this week from a young lady who's going to be baptized, and it was, I want to come and talk to you about it. I've never, I was never baptized when I was young. I was saved. Uh, and then here's the deal. I mean, it was like, and so when I came forward to jo- join the church, the topic never came up. And I thought, well, we missed that one, didn't we? But I think we have missed the point a lot of our lives with a lot of stuff. And so I want to talk to you this morning about understanding baptism. I I know that that's probably a weird subject to some of you. But um, I just feel like we need to talk about it. Uh, It's something I think that's very neglected in our teaching Because we just assume that everybody knows and understands exactly what that means. And uh, very honestly, I I feel like uh, in churches we have diminished or at least been inconsistent when it comes to this matter of this ordinance of baptism. We participate in the Lord's Supper on Wednesday night. Uh, We will participate in baptism on uh, next Sunday morning. And... um, Those are the two things the Lord left us to do when he left. So they must be pretty important. Well, we would agree with him, Pastor Kearns, would we not, that these are important things that the Lord has left. But it's interesting how he's framed this. uh, Important things for us to do. Okay, number one, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and that actually is related to his, his use of the term ordinance, which is different from how Lutherans conceptualize both of these things, these sacraments. In other words, what baptism and the Lord's Supper become are these sort of additional laws that the Christian must follow. So you got the Ten Commandments. You could really talk about the Twelve Commandments probably from an evangelical perspective, couldn't you? That's a good point. Certainly, the Lord has commanded these two things, but he has commanded them as gifts through which he brings gifts to his people, namely the forgiveness of sins and uh, rescue from death and the devil and, and everlasting life. Yeah, it amazes me how every time I hear this, I start to think about how the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, they totally do not understand pneumatology at all because 
this is how the Holy Spirit has attached himself through these means. So the Spirit floats out here somewhere and does one thing, and then we've got these other things, these ordinances as they call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the Spirit and those two things just don't ever come together, is what you're saying, in their way of thinking. That's correct. They are completely divorced. Which is, you know, really puts a lie to the the biblical testimony, right? Titus chapter 3 tells it all. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. There, the Spirit and the water are clearly linked. John 3, 5 is another place. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. An evangelical would not look at that Titus passage as being about baptism at all. When they talk about the washing of regeneration, yet again, that is some sort of mystical. That's not tactile. That's not tangible, visible. You know, we have talked about this before on the, on this podcast with other, I, I think really with the sacrament of the altar. I'm going to come up with a term for it, a Latin term. It's the odium materiae, the, a, a hatred of material of matter. Clearly. But this is indicative of even in, when you go into most churches. Like there's it, like an evangelical church yeah, you're saying, yeah. It's devoid of stuff. I mean, there's nothing on the walls. There's no candles. There's no vestments. There's no pyramids. There's there's really no artwork. No artwork. Yeah, no, no, no. That the faith. No cross oftentimes, right? We've seen that. If anything, uh, certainly no crucifix. So, you know, maybe this helps us get to the bottom of what the issue is that we can really help listeners or prompt them to think through. Is this fundamental question, is God above attaching his work to material means? And the evangelical would answer it, yes, he is above attaching himself to physical means. And the Lutheran would say, absolutely not. He always uses physical means. That's right. And a Lutheran, I would assume, would point to the numerous places in the Bible where he did just that. Correct. And, and let's go to the cardinal, the central point. Um, the word became flesh. There, God, who is spirit, attaches himself forever. He assumes the flesh into the divine person of, of his son for our redemption. That redemption was effected not—look, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a spirit that was nailed to the cross— It was the enfleshed Son of God. Blood flowed from his side, and he expired his last. His body stank as it would have stunk as it decayed in the grave. How do you have this as the central feature of your faith? And then say, eh, you know what? God doesn't like, he just just is above this kind of material stuff. Because it is a heart religion. And so remember what you were saying just a moment ago about the Holy Spirit being divorced, as it were, from these tangible, physical things, elements, what have you. So the way that you pick up on the Holy Spirit, the barometer is is one's heart. Which is really interesting. I'm just thinking about the, the Annunciation, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And how is Mary supposed to know this? Well, because she conceives the Son of God in her womb, right? Right. A very physical thing. Right. Yeah. And, and speaking mean, of, I always think about Luther, something to the extent of how did Mary conceive the Christ child? It was through her ear canal. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, when she heard the word. Right. And, and again, let's not forget, the word is physical. It's always sound waves, or it's always black ink on white paper, or it's always signed for somebody who's 
who's uh, deaf. I did want to point out that I did like what the pastor said when he lamented how this is not taught very often in the church. I assume he believes that. What, that, that it's not taught often right, in the church? Right, that there's but... a dearth of teaching on this. Well, he hasn't been in a Lutheran church, has he? Obviously not. And the second thing is they have nothing to say. The reason that there's a dearth on Lord's Supper and baptism is because it all boils down to just obey it. Just do, do it. Do the ordinance. Right. Do the ordinance, yeah. And this is what Pastor Okri and I were pointing out with baptism. Every guy that we've listened to thus far, it's all just cracking the whip about do it, do it, do it, which this guy is going to do here in a little while. What more do you say when you don't say— When there's no gift attached to it. When there's right. no benefit. Mm -hmm. When there's no forgiveness of sins, no life, no salvation, no— Filling of the Holy Spirit. It's just like giving your offering on Sunday morning, in a sense, then. How so? Well, I mean, we are commanded to uh, support the work of the church with our monetary gifts, correct? And, um, you know, there is a secondary or tertiary benefit to that, but I don't get anything out of parting with my money, just as I don't get anything out of getting water splashed on me. I'm just fulfilling a commandment of God. And this is what Pastor Oakry kept going back to, is what's wrong with people saying, okay, I hear what you have to say, Pastor, but I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe. I really don't see the need. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything for me. What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. How about this? How about if we put it this way? If God isn't really doing anything through it, what's the point? And if he is doing something through it, we ought to what? we ought we ought to embrace what, it. What prevents me from being baptized? Exactly right, Team <laughs> Exactly, yes. Uh, not a lot of teaching, not a lot of preaching on the subject, but um, by his own admission, the Lord's Supper and baptism are the two things that the Lord Jesus has left behind, as he says, for us to do. And now he says there's a lack of preaching and teaching on this. I want to just point out to people that that is true only in the evangelical church. And we've, we've already mentioned this, but it is not true in the Lutheran church. We spend a ton of time teaching baptism. It is one-sixth of the content that we teach to children in their three years of catechesis here in our congregation. That means about half a year total is devoted to teaching on baptism. Why? precisely because it is important, precisely because the Lord has instituted it, but more importantly, because through it the Lord gives us gifts. The other thing I want to mention is this, your sermon on Sunday. Somebody came in uh, this past week and said, my friend who was with me uh, after hearing Pastor Kearns' sermon uh, would like to be baptized. Well, this is interesting. Your sermon wasn't specifically about baptism. It was about the name of the triune God. This was uh, Trinity Sunday that you preached on. But look, you said correctly that God attaches his name to this water, and this person was moved to do so. Now, think about this. I just want people to think about this who are listening, that if this is truly important, if, if you're listening to this and as an evangelical thinking baptism truly is important because the Lord gave it to us, and you're not hearing anything about it at your church, go to a Lutheran church. Yeah, and then on top of the catechetical instruction, it's the fact that in every Lutheran sermon— Every Lutheran every sermon. Every one! Right. There, there is, if not a 
a, a major focus on baptism, it makes an honorable mention in every sermon. And you almost can't not make honorable mention of it, right? Because this is the means by which the Lord, you know, whatever the Lord Jesus is doing, whether he's actively obeying God's law on our behalf, whether he is suffering and dying uh, in punishment on our behalf, whether he's ascending into heaven on our behalf, all of this is made ours through the water of holy baptism. And the evangelical is very familiar with Paul's writings where he talks about being clothed in Christ or clothed with Christ Mm -hmm. or put on Christ. All of those references, that comes about through baptism. They do not see it that way. I remember when you were wearing the cope on a Sunday morning and you were wanting to lose it because— uh, you lose it for the second service because you felt really uh, cramped in by it. You felt like Barney the Dinosaur. Exactly, yeah, right. <laughs> it was probably hot, too, yeah. But I told you, don't take that thing off because it's such a beautiful picture when you were talking about being clothed in Christ through one's baptism. Oh, my goodness. Right, I think All I— All of those verses just just pop off the page. Yes, and 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 how could you—I mean, I don't understand that. We're talking Galatians 3 here. Um, do you not know that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ? How do you divorce baptism from the putting on of Christ? I got nothing. Okay. <laughs> none of my instructors, none of my teachers have ever made that connection. I mean, you talk about— put off the old man and then put on the new like it's all it's all baptism clothing metaphors yeah mm-hmm. and that clothing metaphor as you know takes us right back to the garden of Adam and Eve clothing themselves in their own works and then Christ coming along saying no I will clothe you and now he does the exact same thing but it's through the spirit and the water yeah together Spirit and water together. The spirit bound to the water because he wants to be bound to the water. Correct. Yeah. And let's talk about early church ritual in this regard. Lest anybody think that this is a theologumenon of ours in the 21st century, early Christians were wrapped in a white robe as soon as they emerged from the water of baptism, symbolizing, now look, the symbol was the white robe, symbolizing that through their baptism they had put on Christ. This is how the early Christians understood Galatians 3 and all of these other passages that you've just been talking about with having to do with clothing. I just want to talk to you this morning, if I can, as your pastor. I want to preach to you. I just want to talk to you about what this really means. Now, here's what I don't want. I'm not trying to shame anybody into being baptized or being rebaptized. Okay? I don't mind telling you, as, as a child who came forward, um, my baptismal experience was this. I came forward um, to receive Christ as my Savior. I was very introverted, very shy. Uh, getting up one time in front of a church was hard enough. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to go through the baptismal waters with everybody watching. So, Pastor Bruss, what he is explaining here is clearly a Baptist church, Mm -hmm. and there is an altar call, meaning that at the end of the sermon, the pastor then brings it all home to, none of this makes sense, what I've been preaching about, unless you accept Christ. 
And so the pianist would normally come up and begin to play softly as the pastor makes this emotional appeal to accept Jesus. And so that's what he did. He wanted to be a Christian. He didn't want to go to hell. He wanted to go to heaven. He believed. And so, so when he talks about being in front of the church, that's what he's, that's what he's referring to. He had to go up in front of the church. You okay. go up in front of the church and meet with the pastor during, during the song time, and the pastor would say, what are you doing down here, Johnny? And Johnny says, I want to accept Jesus. And you say, well, glory be to God. And uh, everybody looks, the pastor then looks out at the audience and says, Johnny here wants to accept Jesus into his heart. And everybody says, amen. After that, he would come back and he would be baptized the next Sunday. So this is really believer's baptism. That is the name. It's the believer who's being baptized. Mm -hmm. To fulfill an ordinance of Christ. And to demonstrate to the church that you truly did make a decision. That's very interesting. So it's it's an outward verification of uh, your claiming has transpired in your heart. And, and the interesting thing here is, I, I mean, I just go back to so many of these scriptures, um, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. So the conversion apparently in this scenario takes place when you go up and talk to the pastor and say, I want to accept Jesus in my heart. And then wh- I mean, when does the conversion take place? Usually there's something called the sinner's prayer that one would pray up in front with the pastor. And that's when the conversion occurs. Correct. It's interesting. Let's talk about the small catechism, right? I, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, to come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel and lightened me with his gifts, so on and so forth. A Lutheran would say that the conversion has already happened and that this is, in a sense, you know, um, having this prayer, the sinner's prayer, whatever it is, is, in a sense, the first act of one's faith the faith is already there it doesn't come as a result of the prayer because you could not pray the prayer if you did not trust that the lord would be merciful and gracious and receive you as his and had received you as his child for the sake of the merits of jesus christ Right, so uh, that verse, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Correct. It's, it's already happened, right? If, if you're coming up and saying the sinner's prayer, you are saying that Jesus is Lord already. So what you're pointing out is is that the regeneration has already taken place before one walks the aisle, puts his hand in the pastor's hand, and prays the sinner's prayer. Good, and how has this happened? It's happened through the preaching of the Word because faith and, cometh by hearing. Right, and the work of the Holy Spirit connected with the preaching of the Word. Yet again, the Holy Spirit connecting himself, binding himself to something physical. And, and this is the weird thing that I, that I just don't get. I mean, do they really think that there are people out there that are just getting shazammed by the Holy Spirit? Do, I mean, maybe they do. That, that apart from the Word, apart from the, the means of grace, that people are coming to faith? I don't know what they think. Yeah. But it's weird, isn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. It's weird. Yeah. Now, what this pastor is going to say is how he was very introverted and he was very scared to walk the aisle. But this is the culture that he grew up in. He didn't want to be baptized because he didn't want to have to do that in front of everybody. Again, yeah. But here in just a moment, he's going to say that his sister, she walked the aisle and she didn't have a problem getting baptized. So he's going to be baptized with her. 
And so my sister came to the Lord a, a year or so later, and so we were baptized together. I, I was able to go through the baptismal waters with her. Pastor Bruss, this pastor has been lamenting the fact that baptism is not taught a lot in this church. He makes a decision, is not baptized a year later. Couldn't we say that even in his church growing up, there was a dearth of teaching on baptism? Clearly, he was not drawn to it enough to step forward and, and receive uh, the gift. I, I would say that that's correct. And, and actually, maybe his own experience informs the way that he treats of it today. I've looked back in my life, and I have absolutely no recollection of understanding what any of that meant. And so in my life, be very honest with you, I've kind of gone through this process of because I understand it now, do I do it again? And I just haven't been led by the Holy Spirit to do that. Good. Right. There is no need to be baptized again. Ephesians chapter 4, one baptism. And we confess this in the, in the creed all the time, right? One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So this whole idea of, of rebaptism, and he had brought this up a little bit earlier. I don't want to shame anybody into getting baptized or rebaptized uh, is interesting talk for a Lutheran to hear about. Once that baptism has been given to you, it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's, it's always there. Now, you can reject the gift. Or you can put it in the corner. Abandon it. Abandon it, right? But you can pick it up again as well through the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word. Uh, be drawn back to the, to the water of your baptism. That's a great thing. Uh, what I think is weird is that, that he's had this concern, right? And he hasn't been moved by the Holy Spirit to get re-baptized. So how is the Holy Spirit moving him? Does this mean he hasn't felt as though, yeah, so it's, it's the internal barometer. barometer. Yeah. 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 And you wonder what's really underneath that. Is it that uh, I, I don't want to admit that my first baptism was garbage and now I got to get rebaptized, or, or uh, you know, actually he has admitted that his first baptism just didn't mean anything to him. But wouldn't we all say that we have later in life learned more about the beauties and the joys of our baptism? I mean, absolutely. What, what, what 10-year-old or 12-year-old or 15 or 30-year-old knows everything there is about this gift being given to them. We're, we're always discovering how important and beautiful that is. I certainly know more about my baptism and what took place there than I did when I was seven. Correct. But, but you, I, I'm not going to go get baptized again. Right, because the Lord has given you one baptism, and that baptism is good. You know, there's a, a really good analogy uh, about this, right? A baby is born into a family, okay? And that little infant is cognizant of very little about the goings-on in that family. Uh, it has a mom and a dad and siblings and, and all, a house over its head and all the wealth of the family, completely unaware that those things are there. And as it grows up, we all know this, right? A child will begin to appreciate its mom and dad more. Then it stops to appreciate them for a while, and then it really appreciates them. And then, you know, when it's time to go off to college, this once baby now appreciates the resources that mom and dad have saved to send the child to college. All this stuff is there for the baby. It doesn't need to go back and be reborn into the family in order to have these things. So it is with baptism. You get it once, and it's good for the long haul. You understand it more, though. Mainly because not very many of us really understand what it is to begin with. And as we grow and begin to understand these kinds of things, God doesn't require us to do something 
again that we've done once. Good, good. We agree with that. We give him props. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that the Lord allows for growth. But we grow and we understand. And I will tell you this. Uh, I appreciate it a whole lot more now than I did when it happened because I understand it better. And so I've just taken this passage of Scripture in the book of Acts because it kind of has all of the elements to what baptism really is. So read with me, beginning in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. And on his way, he met this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He had heard the news, I'm sure. He, was, he had gone to participate in the worship. We don't know much about this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, let's just mention, though, he, he must be a Jew. Right, he must have been taken into the court of Candace, the, the queen, and made into a eunuch. Now, the sad thing for this man as a Jew is that being a eunuch prevents him from entering the temple. Yeah, the Mosaic law it was very clear about mutilations of the body. And he can't go. So, uh, and, and, of course, uh, we, we don't know many eunuchs nowadays, but what happens is the testosterone gets all goofed up, and it's not like you can go in disguise. <laughs> Uh, and pretend like you're a full-blown man and try to get through the, the temple guards to, to do the worship. There's no pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. You look different. You have no facial hair. You have breasts, and you're very soft. Uh, so it, it, the evidence of his being a eunuch w was written all over his body. And so this poor guy, I mean, just think about this. Uh, and what is he reading? What do you think he's reading in, in Isaiah? Is he reading about um, the, the Lord's holy mountain and the standard that's placed on Zion and all the people streaming in, from, even from Ethiopia, from, from Cush, uh, to, to, to this temple? He must be reading something like this and, and just scratching his head and saying, how can this be? I'm, I'm excluded. It is a small thing to consider that he has access to a scroll of Isaiah. I mean, this was a prized possession, and this is no small piece of literature. No, that would have been extremely expensive, wouldn't it have? I would love to know what language it was in. Uh, was, it, was it in Hebrew, uh, or was it a translated um, a text? Uh, had he been bar mitzvahed uh, down in Ethiopia so that he was able to read the text? But we, we find out a little bit later that he's reading on the suffering servant. And so on his way home, as many of us do, uh, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now here's Philip, the, 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 this angel of the Lord has said to him, I want you to go down on this road. Uh, the good part about it is that Philip had enough sense to go. He didn't ask questions. He didn't, he didn't get into this, this dialogue with this angel. Well, why? What am I going to do? What's the outcome going to be? He was called, and uh, he went. And why did he go, Pastor Bruss? Well, literally what it says in Greek, angelos kiriou. This is the, one of the 
handles of the second person of the most holy trinity so this isn't just like some angel this is this the second person this is jesus the same one who philip walked with talked with was discipled by was now being sent by as an apostle to this man yeah the one who said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me yeah that's why you don't argue with him correct right you just go correct and so on the way, you know, he's not looking for anybody, but he sees this, he sees this man who is sitting in a chariot and he's reading, obviously, he recognizes that it's a scroll. And so uh, it's kind of interesting here because in verse 29, the Spirit tells him. And if you'll notice there, it is the Holy Spirit. It's the capital S there. It's the Holy Spirit. And uh, so the Holy Spirit says to him, uh, go to that chariot and just stay near it. Philip kind of walks that way, and whether the chair's moving or not, whether it's stopped, we don't know. But uh, he just, he goes close. Uh, but notice what the Bible does say. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. Uh, there, there's a song that um, I, I can't remember uh, one of the gospel quartets sing um, that um, when the Spirit calls, you better get moving. This goes back to what we were saying earlier. I know he's just referencing a song. But when the Spirit calls, you better get moving. Remember what we were talking about earlier, how they're divorced, the Holy Spirit, from the sacraments? Right. And so this is a clear reference to how the Holy Spirit is not tied to these physical things over here. But when He calls, you better obey. And how do you know He's calling? Well, they would look to Eli and Samuel and the conversation that took place between the two of them when the angel of the Lord spoke to Samuel. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so there are these examples in Scripture of, of where the Lord speaks, uh, where there's direct revelation uh, from uh, of the Lord's will to somebody. But that's not happened to any of these folks. It is always by impressions, circumstances, emotions. And we've heard that, right, about the guy going to the restaurant, uh, you know, right? The Spirit told him to go to a certain restaurant so he could evangelize somebody else. Well, we haven't played that podcast yet. Oh, well, we'll have to get that one up. And so he did. And um, he sees this man, he's reading the, the, the prophet Isaiah, and so Philip says to them, says to him, uh, do you understand what you're reading? You know, you know what you're, you know, I mean, the Holy Spirit sent him up there. Do you understand it? And, and here's what this man says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip just uh, comes up into the chariot. He sits with him. He begins looking at and talking about the Scripture passage that he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And here's what it says. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He, he explained to him uh, the... the sacrifice of Jesus, the 
suffering of Jesus, the silence of Jesus, the submissiveness of Jesus, and what Jesus came to do. And so, Philip begins by talking to him about this very passage of Scripture. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Now, let me ask you a question. Who even... Who, baptism hasn't even been mentioned. Yeah, Pastor Bruss, baptism's not been mentioned. There's a condensation that happens in Acts that, that's very interesting. You get, um, uh, as, you, as you look at the, the kerygma, the preaching of the apostles as it goes on, it's more fulsome early, and then uh, you get these condensed passages later on where there are these allusions to what was said earlier because the reader knows exactly what the word means, okay? So compare the sermon from Acts 2 to the sermon in Acts uh, 4 and 5, and that's a, a lot of the same themes are there, but they're not as fully developed in the later sermon. Because the author knows as well that these things have already been spoken of in previous chapters. Exactly. And it, if it's a divine author, which it is, he knows that it's been spoken of in previous books of the Bible. Correct. And, you know, think about this. Uh, Jesus' command uh, at the end of Mark, I'm just going to read this here. Uh, he sell, tells the disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's what, that's what Philip is doing. But right inside of this command is the famous Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And so baptism forms a central kernel to the preaching of the apostles. I mean, when you explain everything about Jesus, if you leave out baptism, you haven't explained everything about Jesus. But this is exactly what uh, Luke says that he has done. He told them the good news about Jesus. Well, what is that good news? It's what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do through his word and sacrament. Okay. First thing I see here that's implied, I believe, not so much stated, is that this eunuch believed the message. Okay, he believed the message. And then in the believing of that message, we know and understand that when that belief takes place, when salvation takes place, when we yield our will to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us. Well, you see it right there. The Holy Spirit works apart from physical things. Right, and, and actually, the, the Holy Spirit only comes to you after you have, what, yield, did he say yielded? Oh, or, yeah. or, or something yielded like Yielded your will yeah, or, or uh, submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Right, but, but again, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are spiritually discerned. I mean, what, what what is this? Well, in a previous, no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. How how does this work? What's beautiful is is that this Ethiopian eunuch, he totally gets it. Whereas we're the ones implying somebody said this and implying this and implying that, just to, I don't know, to continue this eisegesis. You know, mm -hmm. we've already come up with our with where we're going, so we're going to take the text and we're going to fit it to 
what we want it to say. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you're saying he's got it figured out because Philip has told him exactly what the full good news is. Right. Right, what Jesus has done and how he gives you this gift. And granted, we're not given to know everything that Philip said, but we're using a lot of liberty to shove in there what we think he should have said? Uh, I mean, he's, he's already mentioned, right? Has, has he not? He, hasn't he mentioned that, that quite apart from any mention of baptism thus far, just the Ethiopian eunuch just blurts out, hey, what's preventing me from being baptized? As if he'd been shazammed again by the Holy Spirit, apart from Philip communicating this to him uh, by the mandate of Jesus. I mean, that's the only reasonable account for why he makes that request, is it not? So go back to what you were saying. I'm trying to understand what you were— I just want to give props to the Ethiopian eunuch who knew enough to connect the dots, so to speak, when Philip helps him. So in other words, he knows that baptism is necessary and that God brings his salvation through baptism to the Ethiopian eunuch, and so he wants to be baptized. Yeah. Yeah. And this goes to your point about— him being very aware of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before this traveling to the temple. Whether he'd been bar mitzvah or whatever down in Ethiopia, yeah, he seems to be a Jew or something like that. Yeah, Which, which clearly makes sense, you know, with the Queen of Sheba and Solomon and all of this. I mean, she's— We know that there are Jewish, were Jewish, ancient Jewish communities in Ethiopia and in Egypt across, I mean, across the Mediterranean and at North Africa. And there'd be no reason for a, a non-Jew to go to Jerusalem for any festival if they weren't Jewish, right? I mean, look, it's a backwater town. Not much to do there. Not when you're a part of the royal court. court. Of the yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Over, over her treasury. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> there is a spirit baptism, the Bible says, and we are all baptized into one body. At salvation, this man was baptized by the Holy Spirit into this new family. That got a stir out of you. It sure did. So there is a spirit baptism. Then he says we are all baptized into one family. Is that the proof passage for the spirit baptism, or is he just sort of putting together a string of things here? He is putting together a string of things, but again it goes back to the point how the Holy Spirit is divorced from these physical things. So now he's talking about how immediately, as soon as the Ethiopian eunuch believes, he is spirit baptized. And we, we would say that through the preaching of Philip, the spirit had brought him to faith. Right. The re just like we were talking earlier, there was regeneration going on, which is what allowed him to say, what prevents me to be baptized? Right. I want the gifts. Right. But Where's the spirit baptism stuff come from? I don't know. He's he's pulling that out of the air. Okay. Uh, to justify the fact that he came to faith and he was a Christian. And he's already in the body. He's blah, already blah. in the body. And now there's this extra thing to do, to the, this ordinance to fulfill. Which is the first step of obedience yes. after becoming a Christian. Okay. And he just understood something that they hadn't even been talking about. So this, this is how he's got this figured out, right? He's been spirit-baptized somehow, which is the spirit working apart from Philip's word, not working through Philip's word. And he's just got this movement of the spirit and this understanding. Sixth get, sense. Yeah. And who do you know can do this kind of thing? Just think of the right thing to do 
when they're uninformed about it. This is crazy talk. But it's eisegesis. It's total eisegesis. It's total eisegesis. And I don't get why he needs to say that Philip must not have told him about baptism. What's the point? Why does he need to say it that way? Why must he preclude the possibility that Philip, by the Lord's mandate, has told him the full good news, which is that Jesus has lived perfectly in your place, suffered, died, rose again for you, ascended into heaven, and has now given his gifts to human beings on earth, namely, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. Why would this be missing from the preaching of Philip? Because it makes the pastor feel better about his understanding and experience of baptism and what he's been teaching his entire life. Oh, I'm starting to get it. It's not part of the good news, then. That the good news is what Jesus did, Baptism isn't part of it. It's just an ordinance. It's just a command. It's the 11th commandment. Right. It's what he has been taught and what he has taught his entire life. And now this guy can intuit the 11th commandment. Okay. Over and over again, we see the message of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he does does several things. The the main thing he does is he points people to Jesus. And And another thing that he does is he teaches us. We would not disagree with that. However, as Lutherans, we would say the Holy Spirit does this through means. Correct. It's through means, isn't it? And he is saying that the Holy Spirit does not use means. He just teaches you, yeah, in, in the, some, as we're seeing here with the eunuch who's, who hasn't heard a word about baptism, according to this guy, and now says, what prevents me from being baptized? You have a teacher. And so... Um, as they're traveling, the Ethiopian eunuch says, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went, eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. A... A New Testament example of baptism. Um, Let me just begin by saying that that this message this morning is not meant to create controversy or arguments. Uh, It's a topic of much discussion. It divides denominations concerning its meaning and its procedure. Okay? We, we are divided denominationally at times over this matter of baptism. Not so much of its meaning, but of its procedure. Now, for the most part, he's right about that. How so? That there's a lot of division. Oh, right, that there is a lot of division, right. But, but what he's wrong about is not that the division takes place over the procedure. The division actually takes place in what's going on. In, in the meaning. Baptism. Yes. In right. The... And he's making it out like this is what all of us believe it means, but yet some people will sprinkle, some people will immerse. He's talking about mode. He's talking about how the mode of baptism really 
becomes the point of contention. Where you and I would disagree, and most of, I hope most of our listeners would disagree, is say, no, actually, it's in the former rather than the latter. Right, in, in the meaning and in, in what's actually happening in baptism, right. So let's clarify that for everybody very quickly. For a Baptist and for m- many, many Protestants, if not most of them, Baptism is nothing more than the fulfillment, uh, my personal fulfillment of a command of God. We've been talking about it as the 11th commandment. In the scriptural and Lutheran teaching, baptism is a, as it were, a pipe by which God gives you the full gifts of salvation. He rescues from death and the devil and gives you everlasting life. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Baptism is connected with salvation in that passage. But how does water do such great things? (laughs) Certainly not just water does these things, (laughs) but the word of God that is in and with the water does these things, right? And the faith that, that attaches to that word of God in the water. So again, this is the active and important thing here is that it's not just water. It's water connected with God's word and used according to his command. And that command, mind you, is not for the baptizand. It's for the baptizer. The command belongs to you as a pastor to baptize others, not to people out there who are getting baptized. Your job is to do the doing. Their job if they have a job, is just to receive. So this is the important thing that needs underscored. The division between denominations, especially Lutherans and everybody else, is not in how you do the baptism. It's in what baptism does. Number two, let's talk about the mode of baptism. The only reason that Lutherans use fonts is because there's something called in statu confessionis. That means being in a state of confession. And when other Christians demand that you do something in a certain way that is neither commanded nor forbidden by God and act as if it is commanded by God, in Christian freedom, the Christian ought to say, no, we don't have to do it that way and not comply with with that. So the Baptists say you must immerse. Luther was immersed in his baptism. He was dunked into that huge font in his childhood church. Many Lutheran fonts are are these huge dunker kind of fonts for infants. But to demand that that's the only kind of valid baptism, that is where we draw the line. What's the active and important thing in baptism? The word and water. The word and water. And he's going to circle back to that. But the proof text for them is not only Jesus' baptism, but also the Ethiopian eunuch where it says they went down into the water. It doesn't, even though they could walk down an embankment into the water and be standing in water that's, you know, ankle deep. In Gaza in particular. Right. I mean, talk about little wadis that run dry. Right. Yeah. They take that to be full immersion. Now, there are two basic questions as we begin thinking about this matter of baptism that always come up. The first one is, must one be baptized to be saved? And the two proof texts in the New Testament that are used, one is found in Mark 16, 16. Now, whether or not you have studied and historically, whether it matters that right at the end of the book of Mark chapter 16, that those last few verses are not found in any of the original text at all. The fact of the matter is, it's there, okay? And here's what it says. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, 
And so people will take that passage of Scripture and they will say, well, okay, it says you got to believe and be baptized to be saved. They don't read the rest of the verse because the rest of the verse says whoever does not believe will be condemned. It says nothing about their baptism. I think that is so interesting right there because he says they don't read the rest of the verse. I think that's interesting, too, and I do not know anybody who just walks around saying whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. It's always the whole verse, and certainly in Lutheran catechesis, it's taught that way. Um, You know, it'll be interesting to see where he goes, but what I'd love to do right now for our listeners is just to talk a little bit about the way this thing is structured. I think we're all aware of a rhetorical feature known as ellipsis. Um, He washed his car not his house. Well, in that second part, the not his house, what's ellipsed there is he washed. So he washed his car, he did not wash his house. That's the full statement. That's what an ellipsis is. Well, we've got an ellipsis going on here. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. What's been ellipsed? Baptized. Baptized part. Uh, Think about this. Uh, I I often like to use this statement. If you take your car to the car wash and drive it through, it will be clean. But if you don't take it, it won't be clean. Okay, well now look, if if you don't even take it to the car wash, obviously it's not going to get it's not going to get run through the washer. And in fact, you could flip that around. But the point here is that there's, there's an ellipsis. And to, to make this whole thing hang on belief, yes, does baptism hang on belief? Absolutely. But Jesus is not saying that baptism is dispensable at all. That's not what he's saying at all. That would be like saying uh, getting your, uh, whether you go to the car wash or not is dispensable for having a clean car. That's, that's not the point. So this guy and many others that appeal to this verse and then say something silly like, well, they don't read the rest of the verse. They're looking for this systematic way in which one comes to faith. This happens first, then this happens second, then third, then fourth, right? I mean, they're looking for this economy of salvation where one goes through these stages. And so when he looks at 1616 and he goes, well, clearly... It's not repeated in the second portion of the verse. Then it is, as you're saying, it can be moved around a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary. The baptism is not necessary, right? You could you could put it uh, right. It can come later in your life or not at all. I, I don't know if he's going to go to John chapter three on this, but he's got to. John chapter three is critical. Unless one is born of water and spirit, uh, he shall not enter the kingdom of of God or of heaven. That is absolutely clear. In other words, you've got to interpret 16.16 in light of John chapter 3, where we do have clarity. And again, bear in mind that there's this ellipsis in 16.16 that is totally analogous to if you go to the car wash and drive your car through, you'll have a clean car. But if you don't go to the car wash, you won't have a clean car. So whoever is... Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay? We got that. Acts 2.38. It says to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So it appears that the Bible is pretty plain in teaching that you must be baptized to be saved. And yet there's one little word there that if you're not very careful, you'll miss the whole point. For. 
for. Which really carries with the idea of on the condition of. Okay? So let's read it like that for a minute. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, on the condition of the forgiveness of your sins. Believing salvation has to come first. It must come first. I looked up Strong's Concordance on that because I, I don't know. I'd never, I'd never heard that before. And I'll be doggone if it's nowhere listed as a short definition or a definition at all. No, I think what he's doing is he's taking the word for in English, for the forgiveness of sins. And if you look at for, the word for, there is a legitimate way in which for is taken as on, the, on condition of. So for, I, I think one example that would be really great for everybody to understand here is at the end of Romans chapter 4. Uh, this is Romans 4, 25. And this is talking about Jesus Christ who was handed over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, the underlying word there in Greek is the word dia. So, for is translating dia, which really means on account of. And so, think about this expression, right? Like, I just about died for cold. Well, why did you just about die? Well, on the condition of being so cold that I almost froze to death, right? So, we, we have this sense of for in the English language. Yes, but that's not the Greek word that's in no, 2.38. It is not, no. So, let's, let's be clear about this. Where it says that he was uh, handed over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What Paul is saying there, the better translation is, he was handed over on account of our trespasses and raised on account of our justification. In other words, our trespasses are the thing that led to him being handed over, and our justification, the fact that it had happened on the Holy Cross, is the reason for which he was raised again, that the Lord had uh, accepted, as it were, the sacrifice of, the, of Christ. Now, the word in Greek in Acts 2.38, where it says for the forgiveness of sins is ace and it's directionality it shows purpose it shows the point to which everything is tending this guy either he has absolutely no philological training in greek or he does and he's lying in either case this is completely false he is making up theology he's pulling it out of thin air or he is parroting that which he has been taught. You know, it's not a misinterpretation. No. This is a lie about what the text says. Well, then to go in and say something like, now let's read it this way, we just take all of the meaning out of it. Right. Did God really say? Right. I knew you'd get a kick out of that. <sighs> so, so you have a, you already have a, an order, a Bible order here of believing and then being baptized. Okay, Such an order we clearly do not have. Now, it's probably the case that in the Acts situation, through the repentance and the, and the proclamation of the gospel, that faith had been given to the, the hearers, right? And they want to be baptized to receive all of the gifts of God the way that God wants to give them to them through baptism. So there we've got faith preceding baptism. I'm not sure that that's exactly what is going on or being said at all in Mark 16, 16, however, right? As if this is the prescriptive way in which this goes. And there, I have two reasons for saying this. If 
baptism were to succeed belief in Mark 16, 16, there would be a different tense of a participle there. But what it literally says is the one having believed and having been baptized. Now that's interesting. Oh, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, so the one having believed and having been baptized, it's, it's not the one having been believed and the one having been baptized. It's all together. The believing and having been baptized guy is all together there. But if there were a temporal sequence here, Jesus would have used an aorist participle for believe and a future participle for being baptized. Guess what he's got? Aorist, aorist. He's regarding them as co-temporal. They're happening at the same time in, in Jesus's mind. That's number one. Number two, Matthew 28. Go and do the disciple thing in all the world. And what does Jesus direct them to first? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So these verses here throw his whole ordo salutis right on its head. There is no prescribed sequence of believing then being baptized. And and in fact, in Acts 2.38, we're going to see that baptism is offered and given to the children of those who hear the message. Ordo salutis. That was the phrase I was looking for a little while ago at the reform school that I went to. That was a big thing. Was They're that? all over it, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Not only do you have a systematic theology, but you also have an ordo salutis, and we get in line and we follow. And you know, it's interesting how when you look at an ordo salutis, it's not as clean as you would like it to be. There's people who add different things and people who take certain things out. So even then, to hang your hat on that, it's still kind of, uh, I don't know, shifting sand a little bit. I agree. And, you know, people experience the ordo salutis in different ways as well, don't they? You know, to, so to say that um, step three has to has to succeed step two and step four has to succeed step three is pretty strange in the actual lived reality of Christians. And all it can do is call into question the validity of your salvation. When you don't fall in line with that ordo salutis, what does it say? Was it real? Was it not real? But look here, what the Bible does is it does not point us to an ordo salutis. What it does is it says, you're a sinner, Christ died for you. He gives you his gifts through your baptism and through the proclamation of his word. Now, wouldn't you say that someone who holds to that ordo has such a hard time with infant baptism? Because how does an infant go through all of these different steps? That's super interesting, right? Yeah, so if you've got like a nine-step ordo salutis. Steps, sure, yeah. sure. I've never seen baptism being interjected into an ordo salutis. It's Nor always, have I. It's always like conversion, justification, regeneration, regeneration, yeah, glorification, blah, 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 right? That's weird, isn't it? Maybe this is not a true ordo salutis then, right? Uh, but what he's just doing is saying, this is the way that you come to faith and how where baptism fits into it. That's right. Okay. So, um, one basic question, must one be baptized to be saved? A, a great uh, divider among our denominations. He didn't answer it. No, he doesn't answer it. And, and I think he, of course, knows what everybody's thinking the answer is. Of course, baptism isn't necessary to be saved. But let's take a look at John chapter 3. This is Jesus' talk with Nicodemus. Jesus is talking, and he says, uh, you know, Nicodemus says, nobody can, this is verse 2, no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. 
and Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless somebody is born from above, he is unable to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't go into the belly of his mother a second time and be born, can he? Jesus responded, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless somebody is born of water and spirit, he is unable to enter into the kingdom of God. Here we have it indubitably placed and stated that baptism is utterly necessary for salvation. Read just maybe the next line or something where Jesus actually chastises oh. him well, for not knowing this. True enough. And actually, let's go on. And Jesus gives his reason in verse 5. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say uh, that I said to you, it is necessary for you to be born from above. The spirit blows where he wills, and you hear his, hear its voice, but you do not know whence it comes and where it's going. Thus is everybody who has been born out of the Spirit. Nicodemus responded and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus responded and said to him, You are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Yeah, he gets in his face, up in his grill, as you would say, doesn't he? Yeah. What do, what do you take away from that? Well, the fact that he's a Pharisee who is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, but yet he hasn't made the connection that the Holy Spirit is connected to water or binds himself to physical things. Right. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this should have been readily apparent to you from your reading of the Old Testament. Whoa. Number two, the second, I think, basic question is this. What is the proper procedure? Is it immersion? Is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Now, look, like I said, I'm not trying to create controversy. There are many of you who grew up in different denominations in this church. I get that. Let me share with you what John R. Rice says in his book, in the seventh chapter of his book, on this, on this subject of baptism. Listen to what he says. Quote, sprinkling used for baptism and so-called infant baptism in every case came from the following, from following the example and tradition of the Catholics who first began them, as they themselves plainly admit. And I have read the dictionaries and the encyclopedias of that denomination, and he is exactly right. That is so interesting to me on so many different levels. Number one, this pastor just said that he's read all the encyclopedias and the dictionaries of the Catholics to verify this uh, quote from John Rice that he's using. But setting all of that aside, he's making it sound like there was never—what were the people believing in the— the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century. I mean, the, the Roman Catholics, as we know them today, did not come about until... Well, until Trent. Right. Right. But, but then again, as you were pointing out, oh, no, this, this came about from the Catholics. This is so Romophobia, you know, we can have nothing to do with them. Right. It, it, it's uh, very unfortunate. It's baby with a bathwater kind of stuff, and it shows very uncritical or kind of lazy intellect, right, to paint everything with a black brush, uh, say it's Catholic and throw it out, without saying that within Catholicism, you actually find some things that, that are the same. Look, I mean, this is idiotic. He's got to know that there are things that they do in his church that are Roman Catholic. Yeah, like the doctrine of the Trinity, just a small little thing, yeah, you know? Yeah, right, just a tiny, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was hashed out by the Catholics? Exactly. 
and, and is still confessed by the Catholics. There's a falsehood here in the logic. No group of people ever began sprinkling or infant baptism because of any scripture on the subjects, since not a single case of either as baptism nor a command for either is found in the entire Bible. All right, he's still quoting this Rice character, but what do you want to say? I, I want to say so much. Here's the, the, the Greek word for baptize is baptizdo. At its core, it means to uh, apply water. To wash. To wash, right? And we, know, we all know all the different ways in which we wash. How do you wash your hands? Do you fill up the bathtub and submerge them you know, in a foot of water? No, you run a little tap water over it. Or uh, you might... Like if you just got flour on your hands, you might just sprinkle a little water on your hands and wipe them with a towel. We all know this. The passage that I think is really helpful on this is uh, Mark 7, verse 4. Uh, and this is Jesus talking. And, and here you, you get a sense for the wide range of meanings of the word baptizdo in Greek. So Jesus says, when they, the Pharisees, come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the baptizing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. There's even, in some of the texts, couches. Couches are, are, are in there. So what? They take a whole mattress and dunk it in the water? No, I mean, we're talking about some ritual application of of water in these in these senses and so this is very poor theology now was there more than just a sprinkling of water with philip and the ethiopian eunuch probably we don't know that that they got all the way into it though uh, we do know uh, that there are instances where people were fully submerged in the early church but think about this in acts chapter 2 38 and following right be baptized every one of you where are they they're in jerusalem they're in the city water for that many people to be submerged is i would think is pretty sparse you're not going to find it and so this is another wonderful example of where they are just way over reading the text in insisting on dun on dunking now are lutherans opposed to dunking no no not at all but if somebody tells us that we must dunk we will sprinkle to show them that the power of baptism is not in the mode of doing it, but in the word of God connected with the water. I beg you to study the proof of every statement in this book. That's what he says. Still quoting. If you will come with an honest, humble heart, willing to follow the Bible along, God will clearly, God will clearly reveal his will and teaching to you. The only safe guide is the word of God. Put away your prejudice. Leave the teachings of your childhood, cast out the traditions of men, and you will find the Scriptures absolutely unanimous in their teaching on baptism. As clear as daylight, end quote. That is spoken by a true, independent, fundamentalist Baptist preacher right there. Uh, what are you hearing there that seems so independent, fundamentalist? The fact that the tradition that has been handed down is irrelevant, wrong, throw it all out. The teachings of your childhood, that's a really coarse statement in the sense that it brings doubt into what you were taught, especially if you were taught correctly as a child. Then you've got this whole aspect, again, that we've pointed out before, where the Holy Spirit will teach you. 
Like there is this movement, this divine essence, this divine force that's going to overshadow you like Mary Mm -hmm. and lead you into truth as opposed to the Holy Spirit actually binding himself to words or to a pastor or to water or bread or wine or what have you. Right. The other thing that I that I heard that was interesting was, if you will submit, then God will reveal. Well, as a matter of fact, objectively, God does reveal his will uh, in, in the scriptures. The, the other thing that uh, I wanted to comment on was the statement right off the bat that the scriptures are absolutely unanimous on the teaching of baptism. And the answer is they absolutely are. It is simply not this teaching that we're hearing here. No doubt. It seems to me that if there's anybody who should lay aside their prejudices and lay aside the teachings of men and lay aside the teachings of their childhood, it's these guys. It's this author who wrote this book along with this pastor who is using him as an authority figure in his sermon. Good. And why are the what, what are the prejudices? I think it's I think it'd be good to expose what those prejudices are right now so that people understand uh, what we're asking. Yeah, one of the prejudices as we've already said is that it screams Catholic. Okay, so so if it if it screams Catholic it's wrong. Good. Okay, that's one. What else? The other one is to abandon those that were, so to speak, closer to the apostles, say like the church fathers. Like we're going to abandon... Fast forward to the 19th century when this doctrine is developed? Correct. Mm-hmm. Good. Go ahead. You're you're reminded of what? Well, I was reminded of uh, a friend of mine who used to, you know, he's a, uh, a chiropractor and, and their whole thing is, look, you eat close to the vine. A McDonald's hamburger is as far away as you can get from the vine. So eat closer to the vine. That's his mantra. And I tried it for a week or two. But then I went back to McDonald's. McDonald's. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> I think about getting close to the vine. I think about the church fathers. Right? They're, they're closer. Polycarp was a protege of the Apostle John. So what Polycarp talked about, boy, he was getting it from the source. We have to take the church fathers with kind of a grain of salt. And criticism. And right? criticism. Correct. They're not scripture. But I would much rather hear what Polycarp has to say about baptism as opposed to John Rice. Correct. In the 21st century or whenever he's writing. Yeah. There's a third prejudice that come into play here. Uh, and it's this, that um, God is above mixing with, he is spirit. And he's above mixing with these lowly earthly elements. This is, to me, what underlies all of this. It's, it's exhibited architecturally and artistically within these churches, right? You got the whitewashed wall that God should sully himself. I, I think that's how they think of it, that he sullies himself by stooping to use water and bread and wine and even words. That, that is not the way that God should work. And yet, this is how the God of Israel reveals he does work. The controversy over several words are, and I, I have read, I, I can't tell you this week till I got a headache. Up until the third or fourth and even into the fifth century, There's not one case historically where baptism was not a baptism by immersion, okay, up until at least that long. 
It never really became controversial until about the 12th or the 13th century. Over and over and over again, men who advocate sprinkling or infant baptism, Martin Luther being one, uh, even in his own comments, in his book on the Institutes that he's written, a whole volume of books, says that there is no other meaning of baptism other than baptism by immersion. John Calvin himself. Augustine, the same. Martin Luther, the same. Charles and John Wesley, the same. As a matter of fact, in 1536, I, I, I hope you all don't get bored with history, because uh, I just never did like it until it started making sense to me. In 1536, in Savannah, Georgia, John Wesley was put on trial because he refused to sprinkle a child. Folks, I, I, I'm, I'm shaking my head in disgust. We have heard such misinformation here in this whole thing. And here's another example of it. I don't, I don't think this is just uncareful talk. John Wesley was not alive in 1536. He wasn't even thought of, He wasn't even a twinkle in his great, 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 great grandfather's eye at that point in time. It was 1736. Okay, but, 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 but look, here he's trotting out history and the importance of history. You've got to have the basics right. You've got to know what the sequence is. This is when Luther was alive. When he brought up the year 1536, I thought he was going to say uh, something that Luther had written in 1536, which would be about the time of his great Galatians commentary where he does, in fact, talk about baptism. Does Luther find great meaning associated with immersion baptism? He absolutely does, right? What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So here he's clearly thinking about the threefold immersion of, a, of an infant into the font of baptism. Secondly, most Lutheran churches today don't have that physical uh, reminder of the drowning in, in baptism. That significance is not tied simply to dunking. It's tied to God's promises. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And just to circle back around to Wesley, the baby was baptized, by the way. Correct. Did Somebody it by else? sprinkling? Yeah. Okay. What was the controversy? Was it really over sprinkling or was it over baptizing a baby? Sprinkling. And Wesley wanted to Im immerse the baby. Correct. And uh, did it turn out to be a, an Anglican um, priest who, who did the baptism? That's correct. And did it with sprinkling? That's correct. Right. And so what did the Anglican priest know that John Wesley didn't know? He knows that God connected his promise to water and the application of water to the, to the sinner. And Wesley was removed for doubting that. Right. Which he should have been. He should have been. Now, because of the traditions of the church, because of traditions from way back, some of that, some of that was, was, was kept. But it all began because the, the early Roman church said, because we are the representative of Christ on earth, and because the Pope is his representative, we can do whatever we want to do.
I don't know. That sounds so fishy to me. That line of argumentation, right? There's there's an imputation of motive here that's that's incorrect. Uh, there's a total lack of understanding of how how doctrine developed during the Middle Ages, uh, and it's not to say that where Rome ended up is laudable. No one's saying that. Uh, what we are saying, though, is that uh, it's not like the church in Rome sat around and said, hey, we're the only guys who know what's going on here. We're the representatives of Christ on earth, so we're just going to tell everybody the way it is, and we're going to have the final word. The fact of the matter is, Rome was a very important early center of Christianity, and as Rome went, so did much of the church. And thanks be to God, because Rome saved the West for true Trinitarian, anti-Aryan theology and Christology. Now, you, you can read all this stuff. I'll give it to you. I'll be glad. But just believe me, that's exactly what's come out of this. Oh, that gets me. Every time I hear something like that, this guy, he is repulsed by a pope over the church. But what he just said there was, I'm the pope of this church, and just believe me. Just believe me. And it's not like anybody in that congregation is going to say, Pastor, I, you said something about letting me see all the stuff that you've read this week. I would love to see that. Yeah, can I can I take a look at that? Nobody's going to do that. Because he's asked them just to believe him. And he said at the very beginning, I'm just going to talk to you tonight as your pastor. I'm not going to preach at you. Right? right. Yeah. Yep, I'm going to just talk. We're just having a frank talk here. Not to, listen, not to not to create conflict in your life and, and what's going on in your life and how you were baptized. Listen, it, you, you've just got to... You know, you've got to take it, you've got to deal with it, and, and you have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand. What is he saying there? Well, he's got people in, as he said, he's got people from different religious backgrounds, and he's doing his best to convict without offending. Like, I got baptized by my Catholic priest when I was an infant. I'm pretty sure my baptism is just fine. But now this guy's telling me something else, and how am I going to deal with this? And and you know what the sad thing is? He's letting them sort of figure that out themselves. Well, if he is so sure about this, he ought to insist that they be rebaptized. Absolutely. But you'll notice where he pinned the solution. The Holy Spirit is going to do the job. Has got to do it. Mm-hmm. Again, here is that nebulous. Holy Spirit out there looking to lead God and direct, but he's not going to use anything physical, tangible, tactile to do it. It's a really confusing way to live. It is, because what if the Holy Spirit doesn't come along and convict you? But there are basically three words in the New Testament that deal with this matter of baptism. Two of them are verbs. One of them is a noun. There is a word uh, called bapto. It's only used four times in the New Testament. And yet in all four of those instances, it means to dip, uh, to dip into, or it, ha- it carries with it the idea of dipping a garment into dye, D-Y-E. Okay. And in those four instances in the New Testament, that's exactly how it is used. It carries with the idea more of changing a garment's color by dipping it into uh, a, a certain color of dye. Baptizo is the more common word that's used in the New Testament as it is um, 
given to us, it is a very intensive verb. And what that means is it carries with it this, this intense application as to what it means. It means to dip completely. It means to drown. Don't y'all be afraid next week when we do our baptism, okay? It means to totally submerge. It means to immerse. It means to dip or dunk into water. There, there's also a, a, a noun form of it. It's, it's, it's the, the word baptismos. Uh, it's always used in the book of Acts. It is the very same word that's used here. Here is water. What hinders me from being baptismos? Always in the book of Acts, it refers to a Christian being submerged into water. This goes back to what we said earlier on. When you walk into a church, uh, if you're going to have a pastor who's going to pontificate about what the Greek says, make sure he knows Greek. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm, I am so, this is starting to sicken me uh, that there is actually um, trading on incorrect underlying facts. Uh, he clearly is not, he's making stuff up. Uh, in in uh, the Acts 8 passage with, uh, with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, what the, the, the eunuch says is, Tima kolue baptisthenai, okay? Not baptismos, baptisthenai. This is the aorist passive infinitive of the word baptizdo. That's not the noun form. What is he talking about? I, I don't get this. Then in Acts chapter 2, right? Let each one of you be baptized. Baptistheto. That's again the, the verb form. So I, I don't know where he's getting this from. Uh, but I want to go back to his assertion that baptizdo always means this absolute like immersion dunking, whatever he says. Let's go to Mark 7 verse 4. Uh, and here the baptizing uh, that's uh, being talked about is is clearly like a hand washing, right? This is not, wh wh where's this drowning, killing, utterly submerging? Sub well, I, I'm sorry, it is just ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm disgusted. It's going to get worse. <laughs> I, I cannot believe it. Now, linguistically, okay, not, not, uh, not my... Um, opinion, not what I've been taught by my church, not what I've been taught by tradition, linguistically. It means to immerse always. And so it demands a definition of to immerse. Okay? I, look, I know that you say, well, that's just Baptist. Well, I get that. Now, this is Bible. It's nothing to do with Baptists. has nothing to do with Episcopalians or Methodists or Presbyterians or Assemblies of God or anybody else. It is what the Bible says, okay? And to deny that it means anything less than to immerse is to really stretch the meaning of the Scripture with, um, it just twists it. It just twisted. There's also a secondary question that goes, goes with these two very important questions. 
And it is the question of what about infant baptism? I don't have time to explain or to expound on the topic, but baptism does require, listen to this, personal obedience and faith. Okay? This pastor speaks for over 50 minutes, but yet he doesn't have time to talk about infant baptism. No, he's going to dismiss it out of hand by saying, by, by just coming out with this statement, uh, not based on Scripture, uh, that uh, it requires, what, faith and obedience in right. Christ prior and, to— Yes, prior. And so because of that, a baby can't be obeying anything that the Lord Jesus says. And, and of course, this is, you know, a ridiculous kind of assertion, right? Jesus says, let the little children tabrefe, these are infants, come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. So— Number two, in the letter of Paul to Titus, again, let us, let us be reminded that what God does in baptism is that he gives the Holy Spirit. In other words, and this was put to me one time by uh, one of my pastors, baptism gives the faith that it requires. I love that statement. It gives the faith that it requires. Just as the word gives the faith that it requires, just as the sacrament of the altar gives the faith that it requires. These means of grace operate this way because this is the nature of a promise. When you think in terms like that, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, what a beautiful God this is. Whereas you got to obey and darn it, you got to be a certain age before you can even understand. So we're going to keep you at bay from receiving all the gifts because we said so. And now this God appears not this uh, generous, benevolent deity. He seems somewhat cold. That's, that's very interesting. And, of course, they would take the coldness off of that by talking about the feelings, right, in the heart and, and you know, the, the heebie-jeebs or whatever you get, the holy heebie-jeebs, mm-hmm. could we call them that? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how they experience that, the warmth of God, is through this sort of worked-up, self-invented... Um, thing. Here's the point, though. God has this thing out here. It's called salvation and eternal life. And in the biblical Lutheran way of talking about this, God just gives it away. In this way of talking about it, God puts conditions on it. There's a handful of parables that talk in this way. I think about the one where uh, the workers come and they all sign up for the same amount and it's the guys who come at the end of the day who get the exact same as do the guys that have been there working all day and of course when they get upset and they're like hey this isn't fair we've been working all day the bottom line is look you know don't don't chagrin the giver right yeah and there's another one i think that's the one coming up for this sunday uh in the in the historic lectionary so for the second sunday after trinity uh, it, it is the banquet where you, you've got all these natural invitees, right? The, the people who naturally belong in the party. And they all say, no, I don't want to do anything with it. And the point really isn't so much their refusal to go. I mean, they're rude and idiots and all that sort of stuff. The point comes home when the king sends out people to the highways and the byways and just brings in whoever. No one deserves it. Why? Because, as you were pointing out, he's not a stingy God. He is just a generous, self-donating God who, who defines himself as God toward us by giving. I'm reminded of the parable where 
the woman badgers the judge, and because he's so exasperated by her, he gives her what she wants, and then we turn around and we use the same, uh, the issue of beating on the door at night because I've got a friend, and because I'm gonna, yeah, I'll give in. I, I'll give in. Mm-hmm. The evangelical looks at that like, man, you gotta work hard at prayer. If God doesn't answer that prayer, you just gotta keep knocking. Don't let him sleep. Just keep going after him. Which again, think about a God like this. You've not yelled enough. You've not cried enough. You've not lamented enough. The idea here is, is that this is not what God is like. We we go to him as dear children, ask their dear father. It's, it's just a total reversal mm-hmm. of, of who God is and what he is like. Mm-hmm. And this is why I like to say, you don't have to be Lutheran to be Christian, but the best way to be Christian is to be a Lutheran. Is to be Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Baptism, a biblical baptism, requires obedience and faith. And I can't think of one instance where Jesus or the apostles commanded infants to be baptized. We just can't let this guy make more than two sentences before he says something crazy like this. Correct. He's full of false doctrine, isn't he? I mean, false uh, reading of the scriptures and therefore false doctrine. So let's go back to what he's already talked about, Acts chapter 2, which he gave very short shrift to. Interestingly, we did not dwell on that at all. It was just using that as a springboard to get into this other author who's full of heresy. Well, and I think, you know, how he was talking about the Mark 16, 16 passage, they don't read the rest of the verse. And my thought was when he came to Acts 32, 38, read a little bit more. He needed to, right? So this is what Peter says. Peter says to them, this is Acts uh, two thirty-eight and following, uh, repent and be baptized each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for those far off, as many as whom our Lord calls. So here, uh, it's very clear that the promise belongs to the children. Number one. Number two, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all adults. Hold on. Does it say all adults? I think it's everybody who is is old enough to understand. Is that what it says? I, I think it. Let me, should we check the text? Please do. Okay, let's check the text. Uh, you check the text. I'm going to look up John Rice and see what he says. Oh, yeah. That would be a better place to look. So, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father. Wait, children are a part of nations? They are a part of nations. And let's talk about further accounts, right? Why in the world would you baptize a child? Are children sinners who... uh, What's the evidence that children are sinners, Pastor Kearns? Oh, my goodness. Have you had a child? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Number one, have you had a child? Number two, they grow up and they lie and they kick and they scream and they yell and they hit... Is this even before the age of discretion or what, what do they accountability. call it? Accountability. Accountability. Oh, yeah. They do that before that. Oh, yeah. Or do they do it of their own volition? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. All right. <laughs> Good. And what other evidences are there? Have you ever uh, presided at the funeral of a, of a baby? Uh, no, I have not. But this is the sad reality. Children die. They wouldn't die if they weren't sinners because what is not infected by sin does not die. 
And then, of course, we've got the wonderful testimony of Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there, uh, David himself, a man after God's own heart, as the evangelicals like to remind us, uh, was conceived and born in sin and iniquity. So children are born as sinners. Do they need what the Lord Jesus has done for them? Absolutely. I mean, how can God work faith? Number one, through his word, certainly. But baptism actually gives the faith that is required. Precisely. I just heard that a little while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Obedience and faith. Now, here's where we get wrong in some of this because there are there are words in the Bible that are translated and there are words in the Bible that are transliterated or Anglicanized, okay, uh, would be a good word to use. There are two that, I, that, that really stand out to me in the Scripture and one of them is the word deacon and one of them is the word baptize. He's going to use deacon here for a couple of minutes. He, he must have some problems with some deacons. And uh, this is going to set them straight. But what you want to say is what? Well, number one, he, these words aren't Anglicanized. They are Anglicized. But that's just an imprecision of talk. Number two, though, in the Western translation tradition, this is an important thing, when these words come into the, into the English language and are kept so, like, for example, another word that we have is sackcloth. That's not like a sack, like a, like a gunny sack or something like that. The Hebrew word is sack. So it transliterates the Hebrew word. There are lots of others, right? Lord of Sabaoth, Sabbath, all these sorts of things where you've got a technical term that has no analog in the target language You've got to stick with what the first language gave you in the first place. And that's why we have things like deacon. Why? Because it had a specialized meaning attached to it, and it needed to be carried through into the translation, uh, into the target language. Same thing with baptize. This, uh, during, the, during the days when King James authorized the, uh, the writing and the translation of what we have now is our King James Bible. Historically, there is evidence that he told the translators to be very careful that you don't translate something that offends what the church believes. So, so literally, here's what you got to do. If you're going to translate the word, then you have to use the word instead of baptize, use the word immerse. Because that's what it means. So, number one, he uh, actually gets, uh, King, the King James Version gets its uh, continuation of the word baptize and, and words in that, um, based upon that stem, uh, out of uh, the Vulgate of Jerome. So there's a long-standing Western tradition of handling the word baptize, um, uh, you know, baptizdo in Greek, with uh, baptizdare in Latin and baptismos in, in Latin. So... You know, number one, that's that's an important factor here in the King James English. Number two, he is right. King James uh, did not want to have uh, 
Uh, mind you, this is the days of the Puritans, and there were actually two versions running around in England. There was a G Geneva Bible, and then there was the King James Bible. These were competitor versions, and largely this had to do with the, the headings and the marginal notes that were explanatory, and this was where the issue lay. But there were some translation issues involved there. But here's the problem. What he's done is he's made this assertion that baptizdo always means immerse. It does not always mean immerse, and we've seen this in from Mark chapter 7. Go back and read that, and you figure out how to immerse all of that stuff. So we talk in terms of semantic domains, right? And one word can be like this umbrella for lots of different meanings of, of the word. So think about the word poor. What can that mean? It can mean all sorts of stuff. It can mean like actually taking something in a pitcher and pouring it into another thing. It can mean the sky is gushing. Now, let's just suppose that we had an instance where we found that it means the sky is gushing. Okay, that's what it means. The sky is gushing. What he's done here is he's taken the one instance or the handful of instances where it means immerse, and he said that the whole word and every time it appears, it must mean immerse. This is linguistically entirely irresponsible. So Titus chapter 3, where it talks about pouring. The washing of regeneration and renewal of his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on you generously. Right, okay, very good. So this is a baptismal text even though the evangelical would not acknowledge it as a baptismal text, it gives no picture of submerging. That's awesome. You know what? I hadn't ever even thought about Titus chapter 3 in regard to this question. It is pouring. Correct. Whom the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, yeah. here is water and the Spirit, just as Jesus said to Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. and, and it's being poured out. Poured out. That is so interesting. Think about that. With all of these baptismal resonances, uh, it, it's a pouring. It doesn't say, in whom God submerged you. It is a baptism in the triune name. Correct. With the, with the action of pouring, and mind you, this connects back to Jesus' words of institution in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, just so everybody's clear about what you're referring to. Let's take the word deacon, for instance. Deacon means servant. But it was the, the, the word was taken, and usually when you Anglicanize a word, what you do is, is you take the original uh, spelling of it and you just use English letters to come up with this new English word. That's why when you've got bapto and baptismos and bapto, um, then um, it just becomes baptism. Same way with deacon. Deaconos, which really is just you take an English spelling and it becomes deacon. But look, that's not a translation. That is a transliteration. If they were translating it, then they would say immerse or they would say servant. So, you know what, those of you who think that uh, being a deacon gives you some kind of authority, you're wrong. You are a servant. And only a servant, and nothing else but a servant. Okay? You're, you're a deacon here, you're here to help people. 
not to tell people what to do. Y'all all right? So, as we look at these and as we think about them, the next time you read in your Bible the word deacon, just use the word servant. The next time you read in your Bible baptized, just use the word immerse. Now, let me give you uh, some history, some, some history background to baptism. As you begin to move through the Bible, uh, you begin to understand that it's used quite a bit. But let's just talk about, let's talk about the New Testament meaning of baptism just for a moment. Where it started, where we got it. When Jesus came and this new message began to be preached, you remember that especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, John the Baptist coming, and, and really I think you could probably say the last of the prophets, he, he became the forerunner of Jesus, and, and he began to preach this matter of baptism. But before then, there were Gentiles, and they were known as God-fearers. The God-fearers. They, they saw something in these Jewish people that they really liked. They saw something in their ritual they really liked. They understood the meaning of their rituals and of their, their festivals, and they wanted to be a part of that. I really want this guy just to spin his whole thing out without us commenting so much. But I just, how about they believed? How about they had faith? It wasn't that they saw something in these people or saw something in their rituals. It's that they believed. Right. What about Rahab? Right. You know, she just believed. She had heard about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what have you. She believed. She believed, yep. Cornelius is another example. He's a Theosev Omenos, yep. They were known as proselytes. Y'all heard? Y'all seen that word before? Gentile proselytes. They were people who wanted to worship the God of Israel. There was no ceremony whatsoever that would make them a Jew. You can't do that. You're either racially a Jew or you're not. Okay? So first of all, they couldn't change their race by coming into this new found faith or this new found um, understanding of the one true God, but they wanted to worship the true God, and they wanted to worship Him in the true way. And so they would come, and they would become proselytes. But there were three things they had to do. One of them is called the, the Milah, M-I-L-A-H, Milah. Milah was circumcision. Must be circumcised. Now, without going into a whole big long line of what that is, here's the deal. Circumcision was a recognition that I am sinful in nature right down to my very core. Without being so blunt and give too much information, the organ of reproduction was a representation of my sinful nature. I pass sin from generation to generation to generation. And circumcision was a, um, a ritual that all Jewish men went through to recognize that they were sinful and that they wanted this new life. So they had to go through the malah to do that. 
weren't becoming Jews. They just wanted to worship God. But then something else happened. They had to go through what was called the tubula, T-U-B-L-U-A, the tubula. And the tubula was baptism. It was immersion into water. Now, at the time, it wasn't known like we know it. But look, this is the beginning. This is how it's moving through. And so they had to go through this ritual of being submersed or immersed into water. And what it did was is it symbolized their dying to the Gentile world and coming forth as a new person. You see the meaning already starting to take place. I'm dead to the Gentile world. I am alive to this newfound faith. And then there was a Corbin. Corbin was an animal sacrifice. So they had to go through circumcision. They had to be immersed into water. And then they had to bring a sacrifice. And this did basically three things. Number one, the Malah recognized that I am a sinner by nature. It's in me. It's there. It is permanent. But there is something I can do to eliminate, not eliminate its effects, but at least bring me out of its effects so I can be a new person. Sin nature. The tubula had to do with coming forth as a new person. I'm not that guy anymore. I have this sinful nature. Okay, the next thing is I'm not that guy anymore. I'm this new guy. And then the last one, the Corbin carries with this, this idea of I need a daily cleansing. So here it is. Isn't it interesting? It goes, I'm sinful by nature. I'm a new man, but I have to be cleansed regularly. Yeah, Pastor Bruss. It is interesting, but so are unicorns that fart rainbows. <laughs> Those are amazing to see, too. Amazing creatures. This is, uh, this is very made up. Put it this way. This is not biblical. I don't find—I've never seen anything in the Scriptures that connects circumcision with a mark of one's sinfulness. In fact, it's, it's rather a mark of one's redemption, is it not? Uh, that one is in Israel, in the— covenant uh, of Abraham, and therefore the promises given to Abraham belong to, to you. So uh, this is confusing to me. Now, maybe this is some rabbinic account of things in the intertestamental period, but I'm not familiar with it. So just a couple things. The There are two categories of Gentiles affixed to the Jewish synagogue. One were the Theos of Omenoi, the God-fearers, and these ones never went all the way. They, they didn't have the bravery, for lack of a better term, to be circumcised as adults. So they didn't get circumcised. Uh, but there was a baptism for the Theosabomenoi, which is very interesting. There was also then for the proselytes, those are the full, the, the ones who, you know, adopt Judaism lock, stock, and barrel and, and, and enter into the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Um, these ones are circumcised, but they were also baptized. That's clear. Uh, I had never heard about the Korban business. Uh, I'd have to investigate this. I don't know anything about it. But the point is that he, he's right. I mean, baptism does come in in the intertestamental period, and it is used as a mode of integration into the Jewish synagogue. And one last thing. If you want to read about this, the guy to read is an author by the name of Joachim Jeremias. 
J-O-A-C-H-I-M, what's his first name, last name, Jeremias, J-E-R-E-M-I-A-S, several wonderful little tomes on the practice of baptism in the intertestamental period and in the New Testament period. So what you're saying is, is he? there's a grain of truth here, but he really is gilding the lily? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not seeing where the gilding is going, but I'm sure that he is gilding the lily. Uh, what, what's the point? Uh, I'm not sure what he's after here. Well, let's just let him finish it out. Okay. It's what was required of any proselyte who wanted to come into this newfound faith. And then John the Baptist comes. John the Baptist, the Bible says, was calling for a baptism of repentance. Now, to understand what's going on here, no one understand that John the Baptist is calling mostly Jews to repentance, okay? Because their Messiah is coming. So, it is a baptism of repentance into the water to symbolize the death of their sinful nature and the coming up out of the water symbolize walking in a new life. It symbolized their forgiveness, listen, their forgiveness and their readiness to receive their Messiah. Okay? Y'all with me so far? Is it making sense yet? So now John says, look, you, you repent. He's already said the day that Jesus came, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was a baptism of repentance that got them in the right frame of mind to accept and receive the Messiah when He showed up. Okay? Now, we, there are ten messages on that one. I can't go into all of that, but just that's basic. Okay? So, so John the Baptist comes and he preaches baptism. Ah, but then something happens. In Matthew chapter 3, John's out there baptizing, and the Son of God shows up to be baptized. And John goes, uh uh-uh, uh 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 no, 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 no. Not me. You, you should be baptizing me instead of me baptizing you. And Jesus said, no, permit, per, just do it right now. Because here's what he said to him. I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Did Jesus have to repent? No. Did Jesus, was he looking forward to the coming of the Messiah? No, he was the Messiah. But Jesus stepped forward to be baptized because he said, I need to fulfill all righteousness. Now, now hang with me just for a minute. What Jesus did at his baptism is he connected his baptism to the cross. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't risen again yet. But what he is doing is he is prefiguring his death and his resurrection. Jesus Christ is drawing a picture for those men that day and for us even till this day, what death and burial and resurrection is all about. God teaches in pictures. 
you go back and you study all the festivals and all the feasts and everything that they did, you know what? Every bit of that's gone now except two things, Lord's Supper and baptism. So it must be pretty important. Now, look, I don't understand the whole deal behind Jesus being baptized. I don't. But the only way that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness was at the cross. And Jesus attaches his baptism to the cross. He said, listen, we've got to do this so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. Okay? So Jesus gets baptized. Jesus goes to that cross. He dies on that cross. Three days later, he comes back from the dead. And he's teaching before he goes away. And here's what he says. Go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them. Immerse them. Now, now listen to me very carefully. Let's just use our common sense for a minute, okay? I mean, let's just, let's just, let's just use our common sense. You follow John the Baptist, you follow the baptism of Jesus, you follow uh, Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, you, you, you follow through to Cornelius and his house, you, you follow the 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't make sense that if you're going to be sprinkled, that you have to go down into the water. Here's what the Bible says. And John baptized Jesus, and he came up straightway out of the water. There it is. I told you a little while ago that this was coming, but boy, I am exhausted after all of that. There were some interesting, good theological things. Jesus does connect his baptism to his suffering and dying and his resurrection. There's no question about that. And the fulfilling of all righteousness is also, uh, you know, the Lord doing his Father's pleasure. And I mean, this is why the voice calls from the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All, all of this is true. The thing is that he, he fills that water with his righteousness so that it can be given away. So he, he fulfills all righteousness and also gives it. This thing about coming up out of the water, this is an interesting thing. Pastor Kearns, have you ever been in a wading pool? Just up to your ankles? Sure. Uh, when you were done, did you come up out of the water straightway straightway and and so i think the point is that you weren't necessarily submerged in this water now could jesus have been submerged absolutely could he have been poured upon absolutely uh, there's there's an interesting notice at uh, one point that john has moved from beth araba i think or maybe he's moved to beth araba because there was more water uh, for his baptizing activities Presumably, um, the, the Jordan had slowed to almost, you know, a trickle. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? They got off the chair. They went down into the water. The water carries with it no magical power, no matter how it's applied. But the way that it is applied teaches a tremendous message. First of all, he's created a straw man argument, hasn't he? He said the water has no magic power, as if anybody who says that baptism actually does something invests the water with magical power. 
Nobody does that. Uh, and in fact, the Lutheran teaching is that the power of baptism lies in the word. It's the word that does it, and it's the faith that attaches to that word that does it. Uh, faith wrought by the word connected to the water. Now, is he correct that there is a wonderful picture and teaching with baptism by immersion? I would say yes, and it's one that Luther himself agrees with. How can water do such great things? And he says, water can't do it. It's not the water. It's the water taken at God's command and combined with his word of, of the gospel. But this pastor's point is that the mode is the beautiful picture that is lost when a baptism is done any other way than by full immersion. Correct. Isn't that an unfortunate thing, right? What he does is he makes the mode the entire thing. So really what's interesting about that is that he's saying water's not magic, nothing happens in here, but the mode is all important. So the evangelical, yet again, just like in the Lord's Supper, the emphasis is placed on remembering in baptism the emphasis is placed upon the mode. So let me ask this question. You're out in the middle of a desert, and you're, you're, you, you and some Muslim are lying there, and you tell them about Jesus, and you're about to die, and you have no water. What do you do? Or, or you just get, have water in the canteen. What do you do? Well, what does this guy do? How, how do you baptize in the middle of the desert with, with, with no water available or with just water in your canteen? You can't do it. But, of course, I guess he would say... I'm just trying to think this through. He would say, well, it doesn't matter because it's just an act of obedience and you're saved already. I remember a lady in our church. This woman was pushing 90, if I'm not mistaken. And she started attending. Her daughter had been attending for years. And the daughter came to me and said, my mom's not been baptized. This so now this is in, in your evangelical church, you're saying? Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. This was a woman that physically... We could not get into the baptismal pool. Oh, interesting. I had no problem. Applying water. Applying water. Mm -hmm. And saying it was a valid baptism. To her, in her wheelchair, in the front of the church. Mm -hmm. As well, you should have. What would this guy do? I don't know. If he'd look at the example of, uh, you know, the guy at the pool of Siloam who wants to be tossed in or something like that and say, well, you know, you just got to go ahead and... Get him in there. Oh, what about somebody, what about, though, who's bedridden? Five, or 500 pounds and bedridden. Sure. Right? How are you going to do that? I, I don't get that. So baptism for the hale and healthy only. As well as someone who completely understands and makes this decision in and of themselves. Right. Again, it goes back to this very stingy God that has put all of these requirements on, I was getting ready to say the gifts that he wants to give, but in this case... There's no gift. There's no gift in there, is there? It's approving of oneself before God. Which is no gift. And not a God worth having. Because of that. And, and not the God of Scripture. Y'all all right? Y'all mad at me? Uh-huh. So the Lord is prefiguring His death and resurrection. And then we are commanded by the Lord himself to go and to make disciples and baptize them. Baptize them. Now let me just give you very quickly five reasons why I think people are not baptized. One is they've never been taught. You know what, you don't have that excuse today. 
He's suggesting that he has taught his congregation correctly from the get-go. Isn't that a horrifying thing? And In fact, I'm trying to think about what would compel you to be baptized at this point in time. You know, on top of it, he just made a comment, and maybe people out there in the evangelical world hear Matthew 28 the way that he says it. He said, the Lord Jesus told us to go and make disciples and to baptize. So here what he's doing is he is saying that the baptism comes after the making of disciples or something like that. The Greek text actually says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now those are known as circumstantial participles. A circumstantial participle tells you the circumstances under which the main action of the sentence happens. So, in other words, it answers the question, how or when does the action of the main part of the sentence occur? And the action is making disciples. Making disciples. So how or when does it occur? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, there's no such thing as a disciple apart from baptism into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yet again, how we've been talking about how the evangelical puts the emphasis on the wrong thing. In the Lord's Supper, it's on remembering, which is emblazoned, as we've spoken before, on these wooden tables up front. The evangelical would put the emphasis on the mode of baptism, with, as we're talking here, gives you nothing. With that verse, the emphasis is always placed upon the going. Oh, interesting. On the going rather than the making of the disciples? Or, right. Or, or like, get out of here and go do it. Be a missionary. I mean, this is a heavy burden placed upon the evangelical to go. And how would a Lutheran figure evangelism? Is, is there going? Well, sure there is, and that, that's what missionaries are for. Uh, but that burden is, is not laid upon every Christian— Every Christian, of course, has the duty to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, but they do that in their everyday vocation. Although I think it's pretty plain in the Scripture that believing in faith comes first and then baptism, those two are so inseparable that most of the time when you see them, they are always together. It is very, very important. Yes, faith and baptism always go hand in hand. And so he's got it right as far as it goes, that baptism is very important. But where he doesn't go is to the next step, that faith and baptism go hand in hand. And we see this in Titus chapter 3, where baptism is called the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So there you, you have the, the direct connection of the gift of the Spirit, rebirth, and baptism all wrapped up into one thing. It, they're, they're inseparable. Now, do we see in the scriptures an awful lot of coming to faith prior to baptism? Yeah, we absolutely do. When you're talking about adult conversions, that's how it's going to go. The Lord doesn't command us to go around with a fire hose connected to a fire hydrant and stand at the corner of a busy street and spray people and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. However, there are so many instances in the Acts of the Apostles where children are 
baptized. People have to understand what a household is like in the ancient world. If you're talking about the Philippian jailer as an example, you're talking about a household of a dozen to 20 people. You're going to have old folks and you're going to have very young. You're going to have infants in that household. Look at what uh, Luke says about that. The whole household comes to the faith and baptism is administered to the to the entire household. The same thing in Acts chapter 2 where Peter says that this is for for you and for your children and for those who are far off. Does he say children down to a certain age but no younger than that? It's just categorical children. And most people, I would assume, are familiar with exactly what you're saying in regard to household. I'm reminded of when Jesus says to the disciples, I go to my father's house and I will come again for you. I mean, this is all wedding talk where a bridegroom is going to speak to his bride and say, you're mine, but I've got to go and prepare for you. And I'm going to go add on to my father's house. And once I am finished with that, then I'm coming for you. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to go in there. We're going to have kids. And so in my father's household, they're going to be, grandpa's going to be there, and so is our baby. And this is where Jesus is saying, you know, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are very common verses for the culture in which Jesus was in. And they really spoke of that family aspect and household and we're going to be together and all of that in a much larger household than the nuclear household of today and the reason that some people aren't baptized is because they don't understand just how important it is how would you if you had listened to this sermon just 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 you know there i understand but we become complacent and we just have failed to convey the importance of what that is it is very important. It is your first, your first confession with your mouth or by your act. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You will be saved. All right, so that's kind of a new addition. You think, haven't heard this before? Well, I'm thinking I know what he's referring to. So many times now, somebody who's coming to be baptized will first, before being baptized, will give a testimony, or it'll be broadcast on screens, and we play it before the church before you come out. I'm assuming that that's what he's referring to. Still, what he's done is he's turned baptism into our work. So baptism is that first open confession of your faith, okay? Number two, sometimes spiritual pride does that. I've been saved for a whole long time. And I don't want anybody to know I've never been baptized. Or, or I, you know, I've been, I, I've just, you know, I'm a Sunday school teacher or I'm, I, I, I'm a pastor, I sing in the choir, or I have a leadership role in church, but I've never been baptized. I, I'm not going to go up there in front of everybody and tell them now I've never been baptized because they may think I'm just a phony. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about? There are people that, that I mean, it, it is. We put so much pressure on, I'll never forget, we had um, 
my, my dad was going to church with me at my other church, and he was just inviting everybody, and they were joining, and, they, and I finally told him, I said, Dad, you know, you're going to have to join the church. But I've been inviting everybody, and I don't want them to know I'm not a member. I said, you're going to have to do it because they're finding out. So people were joining our church that Dad was inviting and witnessing to, and he wasn't even a member. And then he got to feeling bad about it, so he said, you know what? What are they going to say? You know what? At least they're going to say you got it right. I would say the reason that there are people in his church that haven't been baptized is because this goes full circle to what, how he began this sermon, is that it's not taught, and it's certainly not taught correctly, as we have seen. I would agree with you. Number three, indifference. Indifference. Just don't care. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. It really doesn't matter. It is that big of a deal, and it's something you need to be very serious about. Mark 16, 16. Keeps coming in my mind there as I listen to that. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And, do, and I guess we've got to finish the verse, right? Because and he who doesn't believe will be condemned. Right. Correct. And so you're, what you're saying is that there's no faith, therefore no, uh, no faith in the baptism, that's for sure. Because baptism doesn't do anything, so what compels me? It is thinking like this is where we use reason to think, well, it doesn't really do anything. But when you hear the pastor say, it doesn't really, it do, doesn't anything. really do anything, it just justifies your position. Number four, I think some folks just don't get baptized out of defiance. Well, the thief on the cross never got baptized. I don't have to get baptized. That's just being defiant. Looking for an excuse not to be baptized. That's defiance. And, and by the way, you are being disobedient when you do that. That is the only bullet they have in their gun. Baptism. If baptism has two elements, any more important um, than, than faith and obedience, I don't know what it is. The two elements of baptism are faith and obedience. This is just a major mixture of law and gospel, number one. What, what in faith compels you to be baptized if there's no gift of God in the baptism? Actually, all they're left with, as you said, is obedience, the only bullet they have in the barrel of their gun. And then for him to tag it by saying, I don't know what else is. Like, it's not just faith and obedience. I got nothing. The well is dry. That is telling, isn't it? So the so what baptism is in the scriptures? This wonderful gift of God to to give us new birth in Christ and to pour upon us the Holy Spirit so that we can believe and to justify us through the blood of Christ. This wonderful gift that baptism is has been completely gutted and emptied. There is nothing there, and all you can appeal to is obey. Yesterday I did the funeral of a 93-year-old man. Part of the liturgy speaks of the promises that God made to said individual in their baptism. As an infant. As an infant. Yesterday, the, the man that we buried was baptized when he was one month old. The symbolism of the pall that drapes his casket, referring to the righteous robe that Christ placed upon him in his baptism. Here's an entire life, gave him promises at his baptism. God has kept him in this one true faith. 
And so you have this wonderful bookending of a, of a Christian's life on earth, haven't you? Right. It, it is absolutely mind-blowing. And then have to listen to yet again this schlock. And all you've got is obedience, devoid of benefits, devoid of promises, devoid of anything that is beautiful and good and wholesome and right and something I desperately need, i.e. the forgiveness of sins, the adoption the righteousness of Christ, it's just gone. It, it's, it's not even there. It's not even like we're being gummed by an old man with no teeth. There's nothing there. And that is deplorable and sad. And, and if you're just not being baptized because you're afraid or because you're afraid what somebody might say, listen, you're being disobedient. Or number five, you've just never been saved. Philip gets on this chariot, never even talks about baptism, and yet when that moment, boom, it happens, and because of his faith and what he's being taught, the Word of God, listen, there has to be, in salvation, there's got to be two things present, Spirit of God and the Word of God. Wonderful. Exactly. The Spirit of God and the Word of God were absolutely active. It is unfortunate, however, we don't know exactly what Philip said to the eunuch. Verse 35, uh, and Philip opening his mouth and beginning from this scripture, gospel proclaimed to him Jesus. He proclaimed to him the good news of Jesus. Well, that really condenses an awful lot. I don't think that Philip just said, good news, Jesus. He explained a lot more, didn't he? It says beginning from this scripture. And it's inconceivable in the preaching of the apostles, as we've seen it thus far, to think of them proclaiming the faith without talking about baptism. Every time they have opened their mouth to proclaim the gospel, it has always come down to baptism. They've got to be present. Now, it can be through a song or something else, but it's got to be God's Word. He hears it. There's no doubt he believes because the very next thing he wants to do is be baptized. Can I ask you all a question? Now, look, don't raise your hand. Don't, don't, uh, don't put yourself out there on the spot. But can I ask you a question? Do, you, do, y'all remember, do y'all remember when you got saved? What's the very next thought? Not, not some preacher said or my Sunday school. What's the very next thought that came to your mind? I need to be baptized, right? I, I can remember back that ancient time ago. And, and can I just say to you that the Holy Spirit is not going to let your spirit rest if you've truly been saved and you've never been baptized? There are some people who just don't care because, you know what, they've never been saved. And like I said, look, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I don't want to point any fingers or, 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 or call anybody any names. But let me just tell you what I have. There are four things. There are four things real quickly that I've taken out of my study this week. Number one, baptism is commanded. And 1 John says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Make disciples, 
baptize them. That's a command. Okay? No option. So, first of all, Christ has commanded it. Number two, it is a demonstration of an obedient heart. Baptism is a demonstration of an obedient heart. Number three, it is an object lesson and a point of teaching coming from you to those who are watching. When next week, when I dip them into the water, I, I will go that you are buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, and you are raised to walk in the likeness of His resurrection. You know what being baptized into Christ means? These guys were baptized into water. You are baptized into Christ. And your physical baptism is a picture of that. Okay? And then, listen, I know this is a tough one. Number four. Number four is to be public. Is to be public. You say, well, well, you know what? Well, Philip didn't do his in public. Well, you know what? Philip was about to leave to go back to Ethiopia, and he had never had an opportunity to be baptized again. We never, hear from, we never hear from that Ethiopian eunuch again. We don't know. We, we, obviously, he wasn't going to find it in Ethiopia because he came from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to, to, to worship. Well, that was a good smackdown of the law. It was totally law-oriented, and these four points are off the point. The first one that I want to talk about is the fact that he, he says baptism is commanded. It is commanded. It is commanded of the doer to do it. But you never find anywhere in the apostolic kerygma a command to get baptized, do you? You're suggesting that the command is for the pastor. Not the person. Not the person. Right. So just as I am commanded to preach and the person receives proclamation as a gift from God, so also I'm commanded to baptize and the person receives the baptism as a gift from God. So what's another one that stuck out to you? The other one that stuck out to me is the words that he's going to use at the baptism of these people next week. Baptized into his death, right? Baptized in the likeness of Christ. And he even said, when I say those words, you are baptized into Christ, meaning that it's symbolizing your baptism into Christ. Oh my God goodness you either are baptized into christ or you're not so the the water baptism is no symbol it is the thing and you were saying earlier how in the early church for the one who was baptized they would clothe the one in a white robe that was the symbol the pall that we place on the casket is the symbol the symbol and the thing is the water connected with the word and the promise. But now he's getting ready to go into the fact that it is a public witness. Let me let me just give you something very practical. Men, women, listen to this very carefully. Here's, here's, here's a great illustration of what this is. I'm saved, but I've never been baptized. Matt and David got married last week. Oh, no, he's not. He is not going to use this analogy. This is the one ring to bind them all. And uh, we watched that ceremony. 
And there was a part of that service where they exchanged rings. Pastor Bruss, my heart, my heart. It's the big one, Elizabeth. I'm coming home. Such a special analogy, huh? Never heard this one before? <laughs> and it's always, it's always really interesting, you know, to kind of watch those weddings. And, and everybody's a little different. But David's, David had something that he wanted to give Maddie to remind her of that day and the commitment that he had made to her. And the symbol of that was a ring, okay? And, and then Maddie wanted to give David something. Y- y'all don't mind me talking about y'all, do you? Wanted me, <laughs> they're not flush, so I guess they're okay. Maddie wanted to give David something as a reminder to him that every time he saw it, he would look at it and remember the promise that she made to him. Being saved without being baptized would be like David saying to Maddie, I want to be married to you, but I don't want that ring. I want to be your husband. I want you, you're the one and only. But I'm not wearing that. Being saved without being baptized is actually more like saying, I want to be married, but I don't want to be married. I mean, it is no, it's not just a symbol of commitment or something like this at all. It is the thing that the scriptures time and again say confers the gifts that God has won in Christ to the sinner who desperately needs them. And I don't see how Jesus could have made this more clear than we look at the places you've already led us to in John 3, where Jesus says, to be born from above is to be born by the water and the Spirit. And unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you shall not see the kingdom of God. But he's suggesting here that one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above by water and Spirit. That's what it would seem to me to be saying. It, it, just as you can be married without wearing your wedding ring. Actually, mine is off right now because I've been, <gasps> pa- I've been painting. <laughs> and I don't want to get it schmutzed up. How tragic would that be? How tragic would that be? And yet thousands and thousands and maybe millions of people out there who want all the benefits of salvation but don't want what comes with it. Have you been saved? Have you been baptized? You don't have to be baptized again now that you understand it better. But if you've never been baptized and you have been saved, I just don't know how the Holy Spirit can let you rest until you get that right. Believe and be baptized pretty plain so here's the question first have you believed have you believed 
what that means is, is that you recognize the reality of the picture that you see in those baptismal waters every time we have a baptism. Paul put it this way. Here's the gospel. Christ died for you according to the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised in three days according to the Scripture. I am His and He is mine. And I am raised in this new life to walk in His likeness. That's all I got to say. Let's pray. Please and thank you. We're not going to let this guy pray for us. But this is taught over and over and over again. So there are millions of people out there who don't know the gifts that the, the Lord has given them in their baptism that he clearly spells out in the scriptures because it is entirely, um, what, gutted, warped, taken away uh, by preachers who refuse for some what pride of reason or who knows what to to simply divorce the work of God from things like water bread and wine where God actually says he wants to work I'm reminded of how so many times where in Israel the Lord through prophets would tell the people look if you follow after the other gods there's going to come a curse upon you not a blessing but a curse so don't do it this is a curse among us. This is not a this is not a blessing. This is not something that the the holy catholic church can look at and go, it's okay. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. It it's all good. We're all going to go to heaven. You're right. This is false teaching by false prophets who are misleading, deceiving. I wouldn't even say millions, generations of people. Correct. And they are leaving them without any place to anchor their hope. Uh, seriously, uh, you know, living the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is, as anybody will readily recognize, despite what the, you know, success preachers preach, is like living on a roller coaster or living in a wash machine. It's just around and around and around. It's, it's from one sin to another. And y- you look at your life, you have to look at your life and, and say, with Paul at the end of Romans 7, right? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from from this body of death? And he says, uh, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he points to Christ, so he, 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 he roots his whole hope in Christ. But how does he know that he has Christ? This is the big question. How does he know that Christ has not abandoned him in all of his sin? How does he know that Christ still approves of him, though the good that he would uh, that does he not do, and evil that he would not, that does he do. Where does he have this assurance? The only place that he has this assurance is in the objective working of God in his life. Back in Romans 6, we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. The, the list goes on. Uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Christ is on us. How else does he know it? He knows it because he receives the body and blood of the Lord Jesus into his mouth for the forgiveness of his sins. It, it's only being able to point to those things outside of ourselves that we can have any assurance. Otherwise, here's the only thing that can happen. 
The only other thing that can happen is that you hate the God who redeemed you because he set you down an impossible course. And I've been there, man. I don't want to go back there again. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody else. And let us hope that evangelicals listening to this will take this to heart and find their way to an evangelical Lutheran church to hear this, uh, the sweetness, the full sweetness of the gospel that um, is God with you? You bet he is through his baptism, through his sacrament, through his word. And is he on your side? You bet he is. That's what he's expressing every single time you hear those things and receive them. Amen. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. Which, between you and me, I remember my master uh, vividly because the pastor gets in the water with you. I mean, he was getting just as wet as I was. I remember the mole on the pastor's ass because <laughs> he was changing his clothes. <laughs> Other than my dad, it's probably the only naked butt I'd ever on a man that I'd ever seen. I just looked over and went, wow. That's, that's quite the moment. That's a moment. <laughs>